Hey, Vanessa. Seems like the Christmas spirit is still with you. The preemptive Christmas spirit. Adam uh, interrupted my my flow. I was literally sitting in my room singing to myself uh, this, the 12 days of Christmas. How far did you get? I was into seven swans of swimming. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you took a while to get set up. <laughs> Podcasting is a is a harrowing job, Vanessa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our guest today is Chloe Valdery, who I've been wanting to talk to for a while. But before bringing her in, I gotta say, I'm angry, Vanessa. Oh. It's been one of those weeks. We have the latest slew of frivolous anti-American Republic lawsuits coming from the Trump campaign. We have Rosh Limbaugh calling for secession. And literally today we had some political violence in Washington over what seems to be nothing but the abstract idea of political divide. It made me think of the conversation we had with David French and about his book, Divided We Fall. It's his Cassandra vision about secession in the US. I recommend people go back listen to this conversation and afterwards go and get the book. Specifically, read the chapter about the Texit scenario, the Texas secession, which is insanely being discussed with more and more earnest, serious tones on the right. And I'm, I'm not a global secession expert, but it seems to me that if this is going to happen, this will be one of the stupidest pretexts for an independence movement in history. This will be a political revolution driven almost entirely and exclusively by a parasitic, opportunistic, self-serving media industrial complex. And it's freaking depressing. So in that regard, I guess it's this is a good week to talk to to Chloe Valdery. And, and just before getting there, I should send... Oh, by the way, you're listening to Uncertain Things. Thank you. I, I, will, I will never remember. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to Uncertain Things. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Where was I? Lamenting the phantasmagoria of political media. Or you can ignore everything that's going on in the world and sing Christmas carols to yourself. Well, we're going to do neither. <laughs> And turn right. to our guest. You ju- no, 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 Adam. Mm-hmm. I choose art. You see, this is the segue. I choose art, as does Chloe Valdery. See? What do you think? Well, well done, Vanessa. The difference is that unlike our previous artist guests, Adam Neely and Ken Goshen, Chloe Valdery uses art to help us think through our political moment and our social distress. Her startup, The Theory of Enchantment, is offering an alternative education module for for companies and 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 groups to try to bridge political tensions and, and the racial tensions in in a method that is an alternative to the common anti-racist theory. She actually positions herself as the antagonist of critical race theory and its derivatives. And to do that, she relies on our cultural canon, which spans from Plato and Aristotle to Jay-Z. And instead of over-focusing on grievances, which has become a bipartisan currency in our current culture, she tries to help people find solace and strength 
in their history. Yeah, I mean, I think for her, the the whole point of art in whatever form it takes is that it's it is it allows us to experience and understand the human condition. And I think for her, that's kind of what's lacking in our discourse, like a, a lack of understanding of of our humanity um, and what it means to be human, no matter which in which you know political spectrum we are or wherever we are in in terms of you know background ideology race whatever but i think that's that's kind of really key to understanding her her work and uh and 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 the way that she comports herself i think in in terms of the 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 conversation uh, whether it be on twitter or or elsewhere and if you don't know chloe valerie you should find her first and foremost on twitter where she is just doing god's work really <laughs> she is she's battling the insanity from the right she's combating the derangements from the left she is saying Fuck all y'all. And here's. Except she's not doing it in such a combative way. She's not. She's like, not as pugilistic. Quite the contrary, actually. She's right. a reconciliator. She yeah. tries to find a way for us to actually be able to talk to each other. But the thing is that she calls out people for intentionally eliding the nuance in conversations and she brings it back. And you'll, you'll notice that we haven't actually used a term to describe her. It's not like we could say like historian or philosopher. Or she, so she's, she's the DJ of the, the political conversational intellectual exactly, space. I was going to say that she's kind of a D she's a DJ. She's a cur- curator, if you will. Um, and it's kind of hard to pin her down, which is awesome. And she, and she, and she delights in that. She delights in being a bit of a paradoxical figure. Yeah, go follow her at C Valerie on Twitter. And, Go follow us at UncertainPod on Twitter, Instagram, the, the lot. And also make sure that you follow and subscribe us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you catch your podcast. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you're feeling generous. And mm, with that, yeah. we bring you Chloe Valdery. Hey, Chloe. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for inviting me. We're, as as, as we said in the in the pre-recording we're really excited to to have you and you're one of those people that there's just so much that um i've been wanting to talk to you about so that there's it's going to be dense hopefully we'll get to through some of it um but so first i just wanted to tell you why i i was really excited about having you um and why i love your work and i think there's a certain type of people who get turned on by contradictions (laughs) <laughs> who, who, yes. you know, who are moved by the human capacity to hold more than one truth, <laughs> irreconcilable truth at the same time, and yep. who love those tensions. And, you, you know, your your debut as a DJ, your al- debut album <laughs> as a DJ is called Paradox. Yeah. I, I, I used to go um, in my, back when I was writing for outlets, my, my tagline used to say it's something like, um, enamored with cognitive dissonance. So that's... <laughs> So can you can can you tell me a little bit about that and if you agree with this description? Yes, I was basically raised, born and raised in a state of cognitive dissonance. Um, I don't actually. That's not quite true. I would say maybe paradox is a better uh, term to describe how I was raised. But um, because of my religious upbringing, I grew up in a Christian family that was both critical of mainstream Christianity. And, um, but simultaneously considered its own manifestation of Christianity, the true Christianity. Hmm. Um, and, um, also believed that the correct way to be a Christian was to partake in the observance of 
uh, things like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and uh, Jewish holidays. And what this created was a paradoxical relationship with both Christianity and Judaism. Um, from the Christian perspective, it was an insider-outsider relationship because I grew up in an environment that was, um, again, critical of the mainstream, um, but also very much proudly Christian. And its relationship with Judaism was, I'd say, uh, you know, outside of, of, of Judaism, but also simultaneously deferential to it. Uh, and also, like, because of the observance of these holidays, I had, a, I had an identity that streamed out of Judaism while simultaneously not being Jewish. And so that created a, an identity or complex multivariate identity, um, which meant that like, you know, checked boxes weren't as, weren't as capable of really uh, successfully or, or precisely depicting or conveying, you know, what it was I, I, what community I belonged to. So in that sense, I was introduced and raised in paradox. And especially because religion was a very, important aspect of my family's life for a very long time. And so it, it was taken seriously. The other thing I'd say about that is um, there's a very uh, somewhat inquisitive tradition growing up. We didn't celebrate festivals, mainstream Christian festivals like Christmas and Halloween yeah. and, and Easter. Um, and instead what we did was we, um, on the days thereof, we basically sat in the living room and read historical texts about the, the history of these festivals and how they came to be. So that also gave me a cosmopolitan awareness, an awareness of history and awareness of the past that continues to this day to have a very, very strong effect on how I see the world, how I view the world, how I approach the world. Can you give me an example of how it comes to bear on your current work and how you view the world? Yeah, I, for example, I think that a lot of our contemporary conversations that have both cultural and political implications in America right now with regard to power and um, seeing power in what I think is a very narrow lens, a very narrow lens, um, reflects a, a, a very basic ignorance of like previous civilizations that have come before us and um, just an awareness of, I won't say how far we've come, quote unquote, because while I agree that we've come so far, I'm increasingly against what I suspect is like this cult of progress hmm. that has affected the West in many ways. So I, I don't mean to suggest that I think that we're like, going towards some utopian point because I don't really believe in that. And I don't think that's the purpose of life. But I do think that there's an ignorance amongst many elites who comment on power um, in our discourse about, with just regard to like the different ways in which we're able to um, actually accrue power uh, in ways that are not zero sum. When previously in a pre-democratic world, there are far more zero sum. Um, and the options that, you know, regular individuals had, the peasants, if you will, um, were, were far more uh, limited in scope than they are today. 
and I do consider myself to be a peasant just to clarify <laughs> <laughs> yeah we are we are we are all plebes yes <laughs> I mean I mean one of the things that all, always strikes me when you bring up history not not just you when when history comes up and uh, like the term of the enlightenment comes a lot of uh, recently sure. very frequently and the 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 shallowness in which it's being discussed is like it has sure. to be either original sin or the source of all our current moral plights or it is you know you need to champion it as this is the the recipe for human salvation yeah. the 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 aside for both options being boring they're also <laughs> so useless and i think and that's why i think that there's a type there because there there is a type that really needs to look back at history only to find heroes and villains Hmm. And there is there and there is a different way of looking at the world, which is that double vision looking over the world and recognizing that this good and evil are are just a matter of of the angle in which the the idea sure. catches the light and, sure. and 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 enjoy that also take pleasure in that mm-hmm. contradiction and i the way that you engage yourself publicly always tries to 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 push the conversation further in that direction like away from the simplicity and the yeah. the dichotomy <laughs> yes. of good and evil into the see not, not only see the complexity but also enjoy it enjoy right, the fact that yeah. relish in it yes i think that this is um although i've always been drawn to paradox i didn't necessarily have a have a easy relationship with paradox i didn't i didn't always you know i guess you'd say you so easily have this sensibility of relishing in it. And that took some time. Um, and I think that that's okay. Uh, you know, it's okay to become, to, to, to understand that like there's a maturation process. I think that has to happen in order to, to be, I mean, in the literal sense of the word enlightened, it's a new kind of enlightenment um, to be able to hold space for different ideas that are, competing in nature and um i'm still learning still refining um i don't necessarily you know i don't find it easy to hold space for those things in every single context in every single subject that i you know run across but the idea itself the concept itself of training oneself to be able to do that is something i find very attractive And I also prefer the language of refinement to the language of perfection or like, again, this cult of progress that I've been thinking about lately that has, I think, negatively affecting um, the West. And um, I think that that's contained in these conversations about the Enlightenment, right? So like, I think, you know, I would say the Enlightenment contained both good and bad. And, and to be able to come to a point where you're not like, your identity is not threatened, <laughs> By that and actually like to, to to have the idea that maybe that is the beautiful legacy or right, can exactly. be the beautiful legacy of the west is that not exclusively the domain of the west but still in its own in its own way and in, in its own form the capacity to hold both i mean that is the true promise i think um or one of the true promises of of western civilization I really didn't mean, intend to get into that, but you can bring up the cult of progress, which yeah. I, which is funny because we, we in our house, Vanessa and I are, are roommates and in, in our little household, we've been having this conversation quite a lot recently. Okay. And that, it, it's really interesting, that, that, the issue of progress, because I've been definitely finding myself very comfortably criticizing both the, the contemporary right and left um, mm-hmm. in my, in my uh, political work. 
But I recently realized that I still had this very profound bias of progress, almost a religious belief in progress, and mm-hmm. which is not necessarily what what would be assumed as progress by by American progressives, but just the idea that over time things get better, yeah. which is which is a total theological assumption. Like there's sure. no nothing there to justify it that tomorrow won't be much worse or that say technological improvement only goes in one direction. It's, it's interesting because it is an article of faith. Yeah, know? that's interesting. I'm very much in like I'm very much moved by the work of Carl Jung and his writings on the numinous and his um, analysis of certain theological traditions, certainly Christianity, um, and his interpretations of Christianity, which are fascinating. But yeah, I mean, Max Weber wrote this great essay called Disenchantment yeah. back in the day, where he critiqued um, the sort of, he saw the ends of, or the dangers of the Protestant work ethic when taken to extremes. And he remarked that. Protestant work ethic could end up creating not a city on the hill, which is what the original Protestants wanted to create when they, you know, escaped persecution in Europe, but fortresses of finance and for, for, for their own sake, right. Um, just, just for the purposes of existing. And I only know this because when I was promoting theory of enchantment, my company back in the day, so I saw a comment <laughs> and that asked me if it had anything to do with, Max Weber and his disenchantment. And I hadn't read that. And then I read it and I was like, well, this is interesting just from a the perspective of um, thinking through some of the crises I think we have today, certainly in America with regard to like alienation and atomization and um, which is a, it, which is a huge deal. And it, I think is driven in part by that cult of progress and, and that a lot of us don't even know that we are, um, imprisoned within so it it seems too like there's uh, when i think about the the phrase a fortress of finance i i think about a a lack of engagement with art and culture there's something about that phrase that makes me think of all of us worker bees like going towards some sort of monetary advancement and that's the only and i do find that when i look at american culture that is one of the the defining characteristics is how driven we are by work and money and i think about how people don't take vacation and not (laughs) but not only that but they don't necessarily engage with art and culture in a way that other other cultures seem to more readily and and i'm curious if if you first of all i think some people who are listening may not be familiar with with theory of enchantment so you wouldn't mind describing a little bit and the ways that it it does engage with art and culture. Yeah, absolutely. So I started theory of enchantment really as a way to bring social emotional learning to high school students uh, a couple years ago. And it's a full learning, uh, it's full training program, rather 25 lessons um, that teaches people how to develop a healthy sense of self, develop a sense of wholeness, healthy relationship with themselves so that they can then develop healthy relationships with others. And um, it uses art as a platform um, to, to help people uh, experience this process of self-refinement, but specifically it uses pop culture to teach a lot of the modules. So for example, Theory of Enchantment is uh, based upon three principles, built upon three principles. The first principle is treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Second principle is criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy. 
And the third principle is try to root everything you do in love and compassion. And we teach aspects of the first principle by introducing individuals to something that may feel or sound cliche, but which is really um, the process of understanding what the human condition actually is, um, what it actually means to be a human being, going through some of the things that uh, connects us universally as human beings. So things that we all encounter, for example, like imperfection, um, how to deal with mortality, how to deal with parental baggage, emotional baggage, emotional regulation. And we use both past and contemporary pop culture to teach some of these things. So for example, in our emotional regulation training, we actually introduce uh, people to stoicism and to the teachings of, of uh, Marcus Aurelius. Mm. But we do so in a way by bringing it into the contemporary present by having the principles of stoicism or teaching people how the principles of stoicism are also reflected in Disney's The Lion King. So by having the like Disney films and, and also contemporary music and uh, study of certain artists within hip hop, be in conversation with the past, with wisdom of the past, wisdom that has been articulated by folks like James Baldwin and Dr. King and Maya Angelou, all of whom are, um, have been curated really in this, in this training. What we, what we seek to do is help transform people's experience of the past and the present and of themselves and, their, and how, where they're situated within that. So it started out as a social emotional learning training for, for students, but it's morphed into a training to help businesses develop best, pra- develop best practices for anti-racism strategies huh. um, and to develop diversity and inclusion within the workplace. And the reason for that is I've, you know, Theory of Enchantment is a startup and I've learned one of the hardest, not hardest, but I guess challenging things to learn that I've learned in building a startup is that it's not only okay to pivot, it's, it's probably best that you right. learn how to pivot. Right. And um, if you didn't pivot, probably you're, you're, you would, you're running yourself down. Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically. And also I had to learn that like to depersonalize, like, I had to learn how to see things not as mistakes with which you will be punitively, you know, uh, treated for making those mistakes, but it's just like lessons, you know? And I feel like a lot of people say this, but it, 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 when it clicks, it clicks. So I pivoted. And the reason why I pivoted was because with everything that happened this year with regard to George Floyd and black lives matter protests, all of these companies were coming out of the woodworks Hmm. saying they're going to allocate budgets toward diversity and inclusion training. Hmm. Um, And there's a particular mode of training out there that falls under the umbrella of what's known as critical race theory. That is quite frankly, wreaking havoc both in the public school system and in the workplaces. I've had multiple clients and prospective clients tell me that, you know, their employees are feeling like they can't speak out against it. they, They can't criticize it. There's very chilling effects. They're feeling a lack of uh, trust between themselves and their colleagues. And so, so many people in my wheelhouse um, reached out and people organically through a whole host of, for a whole host of reasons, found theory of enchantment. And so I've decided to position it as the alternative, better training when it comes to teaching people um, how to build an organic, sustainable, model or culture within the workplace that would be welcoming uh and 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 model the the principles of diversity and inclusion in a, in a real way not in the i think shallow way 
okay, this is pretty there's, fascinating. There's, yeah, yeah. No, no, and there's there's a lot there, and and also you you're such a you're such a good guest. You basically handled the segue for us. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yes. Adam, can I, I do you want to take a second to go back though? Is that okay? Yeah, I actually uh, also want to. Yeah. So I, <laughs> We're I, so anti-progress. We're just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, because I, I, I definitely want to like unpack a lot of what you've been talking about, but I, I do want, would you mind taking us back? Yeah. What was, what was the summer like for you both personally? And then obviously you've already hinted to like kind of professionally, but would you mind kind of explaining how, what this, what this year was like? So I would say, first of all, as soon as COVID-19 hit, I had the strangest feeling uh-huh. <laughs> that something, so that things were going to start to percolate. Uh-huh. I just had this, because it's really set up to help people deal with cognitive dissonance, really, and to make sense of, um, and, and COVID-19 was really a moment on a global level where people on a massive scale went from, oh, I know exactly what the world is about and how the world works to, I have no idea. I mean, that's chaos, right? And so to be able to help people navigate through chaos is, is what Theory of Enchantment was essentially set up to do. Now, when the protests started happening, what was interesting was my apartment actually essentially became a meeting place because my roommate, Zach, decided that as someone who had had read the uh, sermons by Dr. King and loved Dr. King and loved the writings of Baldwin, James Baldwin, for example, he wanted to go out and really try to um, practice some of the nonviolent ideas that these men preached. And so our apartment ended up becoming a, a meeting ground essentially for certain, certain people who were part of the protests. Um, he essentially became an organizer. Now it's important to, to clarify something for for those in your audience who may not know, like the protests, there there was no and is no coherence in the protests. Like groups from all over representing all kinds of different things um, showed up to the protests, and this affected, um, you know, this affected. I guess you could say the ability for people to cooperate between groups, so cooperation between groups, but also cooperation within groups. One of the biggest challenges that I saw Zach go through was really like people not being able to agree on um, what the mission was. Mm. They were able to agree that police brutality was wrong. So they were able to articulate what they were against, but they were not able to articulate what they were for. And just by sitting in on these meetings, which were, as you can imagine, very heated and very, um, long went all went all the way until like through the morning for like this was happening for like three months in my apartment so um it was fascinating from a human psychology perspective to see so in that sense i was sort of again that insider outsider relationship i was inside it and outside it all at the same time i had these moments where i thought to myself you know is there is there a way could there be a way to try to inject theory of enchantment training into like the movement essentially um but i i I went to one of the protests and i couldn't really see a a way to do that it was just very very chaotic um and i just came away with a conclusion that i needed to that, that, that how i could serve that was actually by just continuing to expand theory of enchantment in the way that it was expanding so that i think is is what i would say i was experiencing from a from a personal perspective and then 
um, from a professional perspective at some point, I guess the stars just align and, and a client reached out and said to me, you know, I, I've seen other firms uh, and the programs that they've offered and I haven't seen anything like this, like what you're offering. Mm-hmm. And I hesitated for the longest time to pivot in the way that I described to you earlier because right. that pivot was oppositional. Um, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily, although I'm leaning into that spirit, but I'm not necessarily an oppositional girl. You know, I, I'm a very like chill person, um, but I've learned the beauty of that. And I think that speaks to what we talked about earlier, which is like the ability to hold space for it's related to that ability to hold space for, for multiple things, but also to play in that space simultaneously is cool. What is it that you see it becoming oppositional to? It's oppositional to critical race theory. Right. And what it is in critical race theory that you are creating an alternative for and what, it, what, what do you yeah. diagnose as the problem there? So the problem I'd say is, is ultimately twofold. Number one, critical race theorists believe that the singular thing of the most important significance in human affairs is race, that it's predeterminant, ironically, in a way. Um, so that's, that's one, one piece that I would say is problematic. But the more critical piece is that... I, you said ironic because because in being defiant of the Enlightenment or the European tradition of racism, it absorbed that fiction as fundamental exactly. to human existence. Exactly. It's like it's still, it's still imprisoned in the delusion. Yep. Uh, um, but more critically, it, it's, it, it operates according to a fundamental misunderstanding of the human being, um, which is not moved simply by materialism. Because what critical race theory calls for really is a is a um, an exchange of material goods and power in order to rectify racism, and um, this has been articulated in some of the more prominent books that are out today, like How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, for example. Um, and I always like to like we come at it from a psychological perspective. You know, the human being has very basic needs, including, of course you know, food, water, shelter, which are all material. But in fact, these are not the things um, that alone contribute to the flourishing of human society. Human being also needs to have a feeling of significance, belonging, love, both for themselves and for others, feeling of, of wholeness. And if that piece is missing, um, then you're actually more likely to fall into the trap of seeing the world through a racial lens. Because what happens is, if you don't have a feeling of significance, or, or, or belonging, you are likely to overcompensate for that. And that might lead to gravitation toward um, supremacist movements. This is the basic psychology of, you know, uh, young white men in particular who gravitate toward white nationalist movements. And it, always, it doesn't always manifest in racial ways. It can be, you know, a, a guy whose father is no longer in the picture, feels a sense of abandonment gravitates toward a gang because the gang promises him that that community but it is so it's, it's not you know it is the psychology and to, in a in the simplest way of speaking about it of how extremism works and it seems to me that the proponents of critical race theory know none of this about the human um condition um it's completely 
um, absent from the theory itself. And, and they end up creating the conditions that in, increase that scarcity and increase that insecurity, which just, I guess, perpetuates the deadly cycle in the first place. I guess to Steelman, the yeah. critical race theory, you have the argument that the systems that cause inequality are too powerful in our society that to pay attention to the psychological is impossible without understanding how thoroughly it is shaped by those systems. And as long mm. as the systems are that powerful, we, everything else is detail. Yeah, I think my response would be that the, that the specifics of critical race theory are eerily similar to um, the, or the factors uh, that, are, that are highlighted are eerily similar to the factors that they claim the systems are also accentuating, i.e. race. So, for example, right. there's, a, there's a woman, I forgot her name, but there's a woman who wrote this piece that went viral because um, I think Megyn Kelly took her kid out of her school uh, because of this. Um, this woman wrote a piece basically saying that if you go into a school and it's you know, an ethnically mixed school, look at the white kids in the school, one of them is going to be a cop killer one day. This is what she wrote in her post. Now, there is no material or psychological difference between that and going into a school and looking at all the black kids and saying, one of these people, one of these individuals is going to be a gang member, a gangbanger. There's no difference in, in terms of the, the, the caricaturing, the narrowness of that worldview. Um, and so I just, I just think that the tenets are fundamentally wrong. Now that isn't to say that I think it's unimportant to, to point out that material equity in the sense of access to housing, access to healthcare, access to sustainable jobs is critically important for the well-being of all human beings, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think one can make a sensible argument that material inequity uh, is somehow like the idea that a white person has more material power than a black person, um, and that idea being what, what uh, um, I guess causes racism is is fascinating when you think of the fact that there's so many poor white kids, not so many, but many poor white kids who gravitate toward white nationalist groups in the first place because of the economic scarcity, in part at least, because of the economic scarcity that they're experiencing. So it doesn't make sense to, to then suggest that this economically scarce individual is some, has somehow more power. It's actually the, the less power that's informing their decision in the first place. I actually think that the interesting case made by an older generation of, mm -hmm. of critical writing, not even just critical race theory, just the mm -hmm. critical theories of from the 60s and even 50s, um, is the epistemic argument that is... What is that, that argument? To oversimplify, it's a post-Marxist argument, but basically saying that our intellectual vocabulary, the way we think about ideas, the way we think about society, and the way we interpret ourselves and our place within society, all of that was created within the status quo in reflection of existing okay. power disparities. So if you buy this argument, it means that the intellectual toolkit that we use to try to get us out of inequality, to think ourselves out of inequality, itself enshrines that very inequality. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic interesting philosophical argument that pushes you to look at 
bigotry is not merely something that mm. occurs within the minds of individuals, but can be to some extent inscribed in the language we use to describe the empirical world. But that's the problem. This, this little nifty, intriguing idea can and is getting mm. grossly overstated. And that's where it gets dangerous, because when you take this idea too literally and you start using mm. it to interpret real-world policies like housing, labor disputes, or taxes, then you're starting to wade into the shallow and the silly. And this is how you get from a potentially challenging and interesting theory into a place where people are comfortably saying that speech is violence or lack of speech is violence or by using the wrong words you are quote unquote literally putting people's lives at risk that's how you get this insanity this is yeah. where we're starting to lose our minds with an over academization of things yeah perhaps that yeah i wonder actually as you're saying this out loud i wonder that what the connection is of like the over academic nature of these issues i wonder how that relates to the cult of progress actually oh wait okay so i had an aha moment just now <laughs> but but i just had it so it might not be fully fleshed out probably <laughs> probably isn't so there are several individuals i would say that run the philosophically the game it, the spectrum of the gamut is very large um i'd say Everyone from James Baldwin to Jordan Peterson has critiqued the hyper-rationalization of society or has, has basically like sounded alarms against the obsession with rationality um, that I think is related to the cult of progress, related to the less, um, less beneficial aspects of the Enlightenment. Um, and ironically, I think that there's, there's some thread there with our, with our elevation of the academic uh, so-called knowledge that seems to be leaking into institutions. Um, I, I don't know that there's, I would have to like... I think you're hitting on something there, yeah. because, because the way I see it is where you, the, the quote-unquote cult of progress shows it can show its bona fides is in engineering in yeah. physics chemistry biology and where you can point to those people look at those experts those big yeah. e experts they they're doing their job and every year they're going to do their job better mm -hmm. and ai is going to get better technology is going to get better and then because they share the same building with people in the humanities, you assume that those people, or with the social sciences, you assume that uh, these other people are also on that same track of constantly accumulating knowledge to yeah. a clear, better results, quantitatively and qualitatively better results. And that's just not the case with, with when, when you're talking about people who are trying to assay the human condition, because now mm -hmm. you're dealing with people who subsist on ideology, storytelling, emotional evaluation it starts getting foggy and murky and it should be foggy and murky but when we start regarding them as experts who hold the secrets for human prosperity and the keys to solving the most intractable problems in society as if they're just engineers making the last changes to their blueprint 
then then we're trading into problems. And I think that's that is part of the the the, the call to of rationalization because a lot of times when you get into an argument about when you you know you read a book like say Robin DeAngelo's and I, I have to assume that people who read it have two immediate reactions if they're honest with themselves a this is a corporate manual <laughs> this is not literature and B like I what, what is this, this is, you're not you're not describing humans here yeah. these are this, this, these are robotic it, interactions yeah. yeah it's cold it's it's, it's mechanical it's mechanical it's, yeah right <laughs> but then when we try to say it to people they say no but she's an expert she uh, yes. knows the subject yeah she has the titles academy and the free market have rubber stamped her expertise and therefore you need to regard her as the authority on yeah. race relations yeah and i think that's where it gets problematic to you to borrow a phrase from our yeah, friends exactly. on the other side. there's a great book that i would recommend about this um because i actually think that the i was thinking about this today i think that the strongest antidote to critical race theory is actually somehow bringing in at certain aspects of African-American culture that are, are, that are very much like historically antithetical to, to this idea of like seeing human beings as reduced to the material. Um, so it's a great book called the Omni-Americans. Um, I forgot the subtitle, but it's by Albert Murray, who was a, who's a, a jazz musician and a liter- literary critic who was friends with Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. Both of them had a very, very similar worldviews, but he critiques what he calls uh, the social scientific scientists jive artists who would like come in and um or sorry social science con artists yes who would come in and just like reduce the african-american experience to a statistic mm. um and i'm very fascinated by that sort of conversation because it does speak to the arts and it does speak to the what can't like statistics can be contained in the experience of the transcendent transcendent through the arts it's not something that's like a statistical it's not able to be recorded statistically um it requires a different level of instrumentation to measure and to capture so yeah so i don't know i'd recommend that book um if anyone's interested before Vanessa, yeah, I feel like you, you feel I, I can feel the pivot. Yeah, Vanessa, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I actually don't want to. I was going to say I wanted to ask oh, okay. one more thing before we pivot. So. so I have another thing after you. One more <laughs> <Okay>. thing. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I. This is a little bit of a throwback to what we're talking also, about. Also, I hope earlier. it's okay with you that I'm, I'm drinking wine. It's just oh, like, of course, yeah. I can't resist. No. The, I, um, I would the prefer that to Shabbat yeah. dinner atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, that's a massive glass of wine. <laughs> Depending on what happens next, we'll see how far I go. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just curious. I mean, you know, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, Robin D'Angelo and it just seems to me and I, you know, I also like my day job is is corporate and I, um, you know, I have these training stuff. And it seems to me like, I, I don't know, I'm kind of curious to hear if when people are coming to you to hire you hire you in your curriculum and your training is there almost like a uh, a sense of like is this allowed like are we allowed yeah. to go out of the of the boundaries of what i'm being told is what anti-racism training is supposed to be i'm just kind of i just would love to know a little bit more about what what these relationships are like and and how when you're going through the training if people feel almost like conflicted because 
they're they may be kind of in between two different uh poles yeah. of how you're supposed to relate to this moment in time in terms especially of if they're white <laughs> probably well, but i wouldn't but, but not necessarily it's actually yeah. it's actually um i have an anecdotal story where i spoke to an older african-american gentleman who told me that one exercise that he's forced to do in critical race theorist training was place a a um uh, something on his uh, like a tag on his shirt that that identified him as an oppressed black man and this was the this was the wisdom of the of the folks who came in so it's not it's not just white folks it's um and i, I think again this goes to in general the flattening of of who and what the human being is um that's at the heart of this but to answer your question i'd say it depends on like your ranking in the company. Mm. Um, so if you are, you know, just an employee, then there is sometimes, not always, but sometimes that feeling of caution, or, mm. you know, please don't, please don't say, you know, please keep the conversation between the two of us. Please don't mm. tell anyone that I'm reaching out. However, when high ups reach out to me, it's very much different because they have, you know, purchasing power. They have some leverage, obviously in the company. And also, it's usually most of the higher ups that have come to me have come to me after bringing in critical race theory ah. and seeing and seeing how it's affected their employees. Wow. And saying like, there has to be a better alternative. I came across your site. Let's talk. What's, so, what's a bad result that they come to you about? Uh, well, just discord and strife between, wow. between their employees because, you know, some of these practices entail, like, I'm going to separate you into different rooms based on race. I'm going to, I mean, it's crazy. It's segregation. It's, it, but it's, it's almost like, it's almost like creating moral segregation isn't a good thing. Yes, isn't conducive yes, for a whole, like, wholesome environment. It's very, it's very strange, but it, but it fails to heed the lessons. Like, it's, it's very clear to me that the individuals who came up with it were not deeply well-versed in the African-American tradition, um, the African-American spiritual tradition, which was very much underpinned, um, you know, the Kingian, and even the Malcolm X, quite frankly, um, uh, strands in the civil rights movement. Uh, there's no, like, spiritual, psychological wrestling or insight or interest <laughs> in the first place into the mind of mankind. <laughs> So, and how do you see your role in trying to correct for that? My role is to say, "Welcome to the theory of enchantment. Uh, <laughs> you're going to I'm going to take you on a magical ride uh, <laughs> where you will engage in the process of self discovery hmm. um, and from self discovery, self refinement." And the premise, the theory of the theory of enchantment is that if you are able to develop an intimate, healthy, loving relationship with yourself, you will be able to, number one, cultivate that same kind of relationship with other human beings and thus organically want to create a diverse and inclusive space because you'll be curious about human beings because you'll have a love for human beings. You'll have a love, you have, you will have developed a love for yourself. That's a, that's a process. That's like, you know, that doesn't come overnight. Already hearing this, I can, I can imagine some reactions mm -hmm. from, from people who have absorbed critical race theory mm -hmm. saying that, how dare you 
tell me to work on myself yeah. when society is keeping me out. Yeah. How dare, you to, sure. how dare you putting it on me? Yeah. Unfortunately, the only way society can actually change is if it's put upon us since we make up society. Do you, do you find that, do you, do you encounter that friction in some of your trainings or? I always encounter people asking me that question, but I haven't yeah. actually, but I haven't actually yet. I, I'm sure it'll happen at some point, but I haven't actually yet encountered anyone who after going through, let's say tier one of theory of enchantment for business clients, which is an eight hour workshop. Like there's an opening, but I, I did a workshop for an architectural firm for the diversity team diversity and inclusion team of this architectural firm and it was like there was an opening and then afterwards it, it was so good they they requested that it be made mandatory for the entire firm so wow um i mean it's it's it really is enchantment like there's a reason why i use that term in terms of like the process by which one really comes to delight in their own life um and and there's also a le- there's also less cynicism and far greater optimism when you go through the training. So what's your kind of vision for a better America? A better America? (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) The entire country. You know, for (laughs) how, uh, basically, Chloe, how are you going to fix the American soul? (laughs) (laughs) I, listen, I'm only one person. No, no, but bring it down to whatever scale you're comfortable with. What's long-term success? Yeah. What's your, you know, cult of progress your own cult of progress <laughs> that's amazing i love how you brought it back brought it back okay so i have on this my uh, whiteboard in front of me here i have i wrote on it the enchantment universe nice um uh listen i want i definitely want i like to say that i want theory of enchantment to be to do what nike and i love nike as a brand but uh to do what nike actually claims to do because nike claims to sell human potential but what Nike actually sells is apparel. And that's fine. That's fine. That's totally fine. I like it. It's aesthetically beautiful. People need sneakers. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of their sneakers are designed to, for optimal performance for athletes. So there's, there's like, I'm not trying to downplay and I really do. I read a lot about Nike and developing my own company. Um, but what I would actually like to do is refine, master the art of, of, um, teaching people human potential and teaching people to pursue human potential. What that means on a practical level is building up the business consultant wing of it. But also I want theory of enchantment to have a very strong multimedia um, sort of empire arm, which is obviously takes a lot of time to create, but because we're so heavily driven by a love of pop culture, um, we want to make a contribution to the pop culture as well and to the zeitgeist as well by producing, eventually being able to produce, you know, podcasts and films and shows mm-hmm. that carry the spirit of what we're trying to represent. I, I imagine that the dream is it becoming such a dominant force at some point that you can actually be a counterweight yes. to <laughs> yes. the forces of facile belligerence. The, the, the anti-Fox News <laughs> anti-Robin D'Angelo well yeah to that point I do want to also be able to prove that um, compassion is profitable because I think that a lot of the uh, multimedia platforms not just the traditional ones like Fox News and CNN but also like social media platforms um, 
like Twitter and such are financially incentivized to outrage us because yeah. what what are they buying or what are what are they selling rather consumers attention that's what they're selling and we don't know this um but or some of us don't know this but that's what they're actually selling they're selling our eyeballs uh constantly paying attention to their to their content and so what i'm trying to also do with this project is prove that you can make compassionate healthy content profitable so yeah in that sense it is the anti-fox news <laughs> right that compassion is profitable and i i guess complexity yeah is, complexity is is, yeah compassion and complexity yeah I gotta tell you, in in my my only startup uh, was trying to sell complexity, and it, <laughs> it's because you didn't have the compassion piece. It, you gotta- <laughs> I, I, I did not have the compassion piece, and it just it it did not crash. It succeeded yeah. when we stopped being complex and became oh. uh, became propaganda, and that's when I had to leave. Okay, the market incentives that were just clearly letting us know that if we want to make money, we need to move away from the halcyon days mm-hmm. of complexity and paradox and lean into the fucking fan service. Which actually I wanted to ask you about because you are an amazing Twitter personality, <laughs> in my opinion, because yeah. you really embody those those values of of paradox and compassion and no, I am gonna insist on the nuance. Yeah. I've, I've, I, here's you, you you jump on and like into conversations with people that I would assume you see as your allies to criticize them if they've went too far mm-hmm. in one direction and try to bring them back into a more thoughtful position and and being able to see both sides of an argument. Do you find there are <laughs> that this is a sustainable model because I see a lot of people who start in this position and then kind of get carried away by their growing audience and eventually getting captured Mm. by this fan service dynamic. Yeah, that is a great question. I think this is the classic, um, you know, power corrupts and what's the saying? Too much power corrupts. And Twitter, Twitter power corrupts. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Absolute power corrupt. Absolute, <laughs> yes. So I think it's a question of, is it sustainable? It's, you know, in theory sustainable if I am committed to the exercise of self-refinement. And if I'm committed to holding myself accountable, holding myself accountable and having other people hold, my, hold me accountable. Um, but I also have to say that I like living in the nuanced spaces. Um I started to mute people on Twitter uh, <laughs> for my sanity recently. Um, and I didn't want to block certain people. So because- clearly your cancel culture. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, no. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to block people who are getting on my nerves. <laughs> it's that, well, I have a rule basically. If you say something that I find just mean-spirited, I will only block you if you're not actually following me. Because I just assume that you're trolling. Mm. (laughs) That you're, Mm -hmm. like, looking for accounts and just, like... Because how else did you... How else was I, like, in your... And that rarely, rarely happens. But if you are following me, then you are giving me the time of day. (laughs) And so, uh, you know to a certain extent I am in service of that and I appreciate that and I respect that. So I'll just mute you. <laughs> I won't block you. Um, so I don't have to be inundated with it. You can still express your opinion. Um, but you obviously also want exposure to some of my thoughts 
And so we can have that mutual exchange without any of us losing our mind. And so I think that the mute function is a beautiful function to self-regulate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, if I ever become a parody of myself or insufferable, I trust that folks like you will tell me. So <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you trying to tell that to people in so many words, in some engagements, oh, and it did not, yeah. <laughs> did not necessarily work well. Does that, yeah. is that without, without, I mean, you can name names if you want, but without bringing up specific, without necessarily bringing up specific examples, do you find that happening often? Do you find that frustrating? Well, I think I've gotten, and I, I think it's, again, it's a never ending process. I think I've gotten better at communicating with people. There was a point after the election, actually, when Biden won, I no longer felt that I needed to quote unquote one. Stop. What I, <laughs> <laughs> I no longer felt that I needed to. No, this is this is actually specific. Interestingly enough, this is not specific to Trump supporters. This is specific to the the wing of the Democratic Party that's like more pro critical race theory. Hmm. When Biden won, I saw that as a signal that I no longer needed to act as if those people had long-term relevance because I saw Biden's winning as an indication that they do not because it immediately, what immediately erupted and you saw this on CNN was a, was a very interesting conversation within uh, the echelons, upper echelons of the Democratic Party about the problems with this academic jargon that was being Uh, you know, right. put out by folks that really cost some Democrats their elections. And then you had former President Barack Obama coming out saying certain things. That abolish the police is, what was yeah, that snippy stupid. slogan? <laughs> yeah, stu stupid. <laughs> that was Obama for stupid. It's snappy, snappy, uh, snappy slogans. slogans yeah. um, so where was I going with this? I had a point. Um, um, you're you, getting used to people oh. disappointing you? So for some reason, my entire understanding of Twitter transformed after that. Hmm. Uh, I no longer saw Twitter, at least in part, as this like antagonistic tool with which to go after folks you disagree with. Um, I, I realized that to a certain extent, I don't think I did this a lot, but it's still, it, I was still captivated by this phenomenon, even as I was warning against it. I think I... paid too much attention to uh, folks who seemingly had a very large audience or on Twitter they did, but in terms of impact huh. in, in the outside world actually don't have much impact at all. And so I'm learning the art of, uh, of understanding the distinction between signal and noise. Um, recognizing some people as just Potemkin accounts, essentially. Yeah. Seeing the, also, <laughs> there's nothing behind it. And also that going after them not only doesn't help, it hurts because I think it's to a certain extent what you pay attention to expands. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I know for a fact that so many things, so many things that folks in the quote unquote woke left, so much, so much of the terminology used is not mainstream. Mm -hmm. It appears to be mainstream because right. of the weird nature of Twitter. And the weird way it works, it's not mainstream. And so instead of acting as if it is, I am going to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that you're hitting, the, this is it, right? Because that's the feedback loop that makes Twitter feel so 
de- devoid from reality and 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 real human concerns because you yeah. see you get it's not just twitter it's the online conversation and but it's also interesting Adam, get, like it, so sorry i just want to finish this thought before i lose it because i'm seeing okay. it running away from me <laughs> it's the it's, <laughs> it's what the line <laughs> oh no I, i'm i'm so much less on point when i'm sober <laughs> <laughs> the the ideas of that that are so not that you describe as not mainstream of the mm-hmm. the ideas of the woke left get so much attention because the 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 people carrying them online seem to be important but then also the reaction to them is disproportionate right. it becomes mainstream on the anti left media sewer to obsess about the weirdest weirdos of the woke left. And now we are all just being flushed down the drain of this fecal water that we are told is supposed to be a public discourse. When Trump or, for that matter, Rush Limbaugh talk about cancel culture and political correctness, they don't really right. care about free expression. They just show that they can punch back at these Potemkin liberal Twitter accounts. But then, but then, then the rest of the world basically gets crunched into the same stupid conversations. I'm often seeing inane American Twitter culture war mm. nonsense being relitigated in the Israeli press. Why? These are fake conversations. It's a fake conversation. It's a fake conversation, <laughs> but it has, but it actually has occasionally real world consequences. In Hungary, yeah. two years ago, I think, or, or a year ago, Viktor Orban, by decree, shut down university departments because they had mm. whiffs of critical race theory. Cynical people around the world are able to use this vapid culture war to cause real-life damage, and it's freaking terrifying. And it works because people are so cut up in these fake conversations that they're letting this happen. As long as the power grab is in service of whatever stupid side you're on in the stupid culture war. I'm done rant. <laughs> Sorry, Vanessa. No, but I mean, what I was going to, when I was saying earlier is that, so Chloe, we had a, a friend of ours on the podcast for an episode where um, every now and then we do like a shoot the shit episode with with friends um yeah. who, who we hope bring interesting perspectives and we brought in our friend misha who is an ex-evangelical uh black liberal who mm-hmm. we found out in the course of the conversation uh, but he, james baldwin is his political awakening we should mention he, okay. <laughs> he was gay married believes in radical compassion is a profound liberal is not, not yeah in, yeah <laughs> um and we found yeah. out in the course of our conversation that he had voted for Trump and we 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 spent the the conversation like unpacking that and yeah. why and a huge part of it I think and I don't know if we, if we would necessarily call it um Twitter per se because I don't think Misha is like on Twitter but it was like the Twitter like fake conversations mm-hmm. that so whipped him into a frenzy about like he he kind of came to the conclusion that it would be better for America if Trump was reelected because otherwise we'll we'll get stuck in this kind of endless I don't know I, I find it hard to, to understand where he was coming from but we'll get you we'll need get more wine of, I need more wine <laughs> we like we'll get it's gonna be bad because we're not gonna like course correct in the way that we are um hmm. that we need to rather and but what was interesting to me when you were telling me about how your relationship with Twitter changed after Biden won it sounds like in fact, Biden being elected is still is actually better in terms of the quality of conversation and the way that we can grapple with some of the extremes of 
the left. And I, I was just wondering if you would like, if, if that makes sense to you, if you feel like the, the fact that Biden won as opposed to Trump is potentially putting us in the, in the right direction. Yes. And I, I have heard some folks say uh, what your friend said. I, I put out a Twitter, a question on Twitter before the election, um, inviting Trump supporters to tell me their reasons for, for voting for him. And I said, this is a non-judgment zone. I just want to know what, you know, what is your motivation? And like hundreds of people responded. It was actually very uh, fascinating. And some people responded in that way. But in my, in my view, yes, because Trump is essentially an extension um, or a foil or a mirror image to me of critical race theory. Like he, he adheres to certain fundamental tenets or he uses certain fundamental um, like his view of power is like very zero sum, just like it's viewed in critical race theory. He believes in, um, or he has, you know, um, dehumanized in many ways, certainly rhetorically on Twitter, his, his political enemies in the same way that critical race theorists do, um, ostracizing them um, and calling, you know, calling them losers or what have you. So I actually see Donald Trump as a continuation of, um, or embodiment really of some of the basic principles or ideas mm. within critical race theory, not necessarily with the racialist lens, but just with the power dynamics piece. I think he operates on a similar, on a similar level, whereas I don't think that's true for Joe Biden. And there's also, I like the argument that in, in a way, this was the best result for, for taming the excess on the left, because you got, you got the, the, first of all, a moderate one, the country, we're seeing yeah. that as a political strategy, it's, it's more effective. And down the ballot, Democrats have lost. Right. It's like, which is I think, I think some balance level, right. on some level. <laughs> exactly. Which is yeah. in a simplistic way, it, it gives you an indication that maybe, maybe there is kind of a call for moderation. In the, yeah. I think it's I think it's an oversimplified explanation, <laughs> but yeah, but there is a case there. Um, it's interesting the Misha debate that we had. It's, it takes us to another topic I wanted to, to ask you about. We after the conversation, it became a bit of a game with some of our listeners and a few of our friends to try to figure out why did Misha actually do it. <laughs> we weren't even expecting it when we started the conversation. We just invited him over to talk, and he suddenly sprung it on us. Hey, guys, I just came back from the ballot. I voted for Trump. And we were like, huh, that's, that's intriguing. <laughs> it went on for two hours in, in, in the talk I itself. I immediately pulled up my uh, bottle of wine and uh, <laughs> got, got ready, got ready for, <laughs> for that one. No, exactly. It was, you could hear my excitement when, when, yeah. when he said it. it was like, it's joyous. One of my many theories was it was a Raskolnikov uh, thing. <laughs> situation he's like he doesn't okay. he doesn't really know why he did it he's just he's captured he's captured he's possessed ideologically <laughs> yes um but a friend has suggested that it's actually his tendency for radical empathy part of his identity mm. is to be able to put himself in other people's shoes um mm. and understand where they're coming from feel for them almost 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 suffer the their mm. their pain that's intense and in this case and being in new york living in harlem he for him, the other is the Trump supporter. Right. I wanted to ask you about this idea of radical empathy because mm. it seems to me that some of your work calls for radical empathy as a path forward. Yeah, I don't know that I would advocate for radical the manifestation of radical empathy in that particular way, <laughs> just because it suggests, I mean, it seems to suggest kind of deep, 
depersonalization or or de like association with the with the self um um and i don't i don't think that that's healthy i think i think empathy has to be grounded in empathy for the self um but we do teach empathy uh and the process of developing empathy is is rooted in that process of developing empathy for yourself which comes from understanding yourself understanding how these different things that are sort of always operating within your universe how they affect you how you can uh witness these things affecting you um so for example we teach this concept called breaking the fourth wall which in theater is you know when an actress starts speaking to the audience as opposed to the rest of the actresses so fleabag is a famous show that makes use of this so is the office but within the context of theory of enchantment um breaking the fourth wall is when you become aware of the fact that the emotional baggage that informs your behavior might also be informing the behavior of others that you encounter so for example if i know that i am act if i know that i act defensively when i am feeling insecure if i come across an insecure person or excuse me a defensive person like arbitrarily randomly um it's like i don't i don't understand why they're acting defensive i didn't do anything to them i haven't you know said anything to them why are they acting in a defensive way i can pause and say to myself oh is this person acting defensively because they're feeling insecure for whatever reason and then i can also say i can also make a conscious decision to be aware of that to be cognizant of that and to do everything in my power and to a certain extent some of this is outside of your control but everything in my power to not contribute to that insecurity because if you contribute to the insecurity then you make the problem and the possibility of negative conflict unnecessary conflict worse and this is something i think that is more easily palatable when we're, we're talking about bringing this kind of training to young people like people get it like especially educators guidance counselors they understand that like teenagers are developing hormonally and their brains are firing off all on all cylinders and of course we need these tools but i think as adults we forget that this is a life actually a lifelong process um so yeah we definitely use um different pop culture references to teach uh some of these aspects for example we use uh hip hop uh, specifically the work of Kendrick Lamar to teach a lot of these there's a brief clip of Kendrick Lamar talking about empathy in Compton where he's from and we use that to to teach some of these uh principles there's a there's a conversation with Jay-Z where he's speaking um about some of the revelations that he had in therapy about like this the inner self and how it affects the outer world um so but again it's all rooted in relationship with the self it's not it's still you know it's, it it doesn't i think there's a, there's not there's not this belief that like because i have empathy for you then you can't be held accountable for your actions right but um i can still put myself in your shoes and see how you would come to a conclusion 
without making that conclusion myself, right? So I, I should just yeah. I, I just want to say that I'm def I've definitely oversimplified Misha's view as well. Just to okay. be clear, he's, he's a beloved friend, and we, like we spent two hours unpacking. Sure enough, this yeah, is okay. uh, this is definitely an an oversimplified and probably wrong for explanation right. of his reasoning. But it it sounds like Chloe's kind of describing the difference between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, yeah, which I we just so. talked about with Paul Bloom. Um, he was on the show our previous episode and he was saying that cognitive empathy when you understand where people are coming from very useful mm -hmm. emotional empathy when you feel what other people are feeling potentially destructive but it is interesting to think about um like his point is that you need to think be you need to strive for a more like rational compassion is it rational compassion at all what's the term so. he uses mm -hmm. rational compassion as opposed to empathy he's like but it, but it makes me wonder what you were saying earlier in terms of us kind of our society being kind of hyper rational mm -hmm. at the moment i'm curious to, to know if you would agree that what ails our current society is an over emotionality or um, a lack of ability to to reason abstractly and and come to rational conclusions um as opposed to thinking and responding too emotionally and too kind of uh, immediately in ways that might be ultimately unhelpful for our society as a whole. Yeah, I think it might be both. I think we might suffer from too much rationality and also too much emotion. Mm. Um, just uh, We just need to have a sort of recalibration of these two things. Um, so in certain, I think, you know, in certain contexts, there's too much rationality where we reduce human beings to statistics so, uh, similar to what we discussed earlier um and we mistakenly believe in our sort of like central planning policies that the only thing that matters is the material welfare of communities um uh, timothy carney wrote a great book called alienated america where he showed how the causal factor in the 2016 primary uh in those communities that voted for trump was alienation and you could tr he, he he pointed out how you could trace where um where communities you could you could predict which communities would vote for trump over mitt romney by seeing which ones were marked by pockets of opioid addiction alcoholism deaths of despair and he also pointed out that this wasn't this actually wasn't a financial situation because there was a community a county in pennsylvania i think it was where he showed how for a certain period of time, there was uh, there were uh, jobs in the area where young men would actually drive in from all over the country because these were or all over the region rather because these were some of the only jobs in the area. Um, I think it was sort of fracking jobs, and they, they paid really well um, actually. So these men weren't materially impoverished, but they weren't able to get married, establish communities, go to have civic institutional life. And that was what um, that was what correlated with voting for Trump. So it wasn't just the, the material wealth; it was also the again the spiritual, psychological wealth. So in that piece, uh, where you would just look at it from the outside in and assume, oh well, they have money, so what's the problem? That's you being too rational, mm. <laughs> right? In a, in a sense, right? You don't understand the emotional piece that's also necessary for the health of the society. Um, and then when you're sort of like I think ideologically possessed when you're like when when the when all that surrounds you is the emotion like when you can't you can't make sense of the emotion um and so it sort of engulfs you i think that's when that's too much um that's that's a case of too much emotion 
you said it perfectly though recalibrating because it's not just a matter yeah. of too much one or the other you could have too much of both yeah. like you can definitely see the people who will have heightened emphasis on uh, an identity which is an emotional side of it and the sense of persecution mm-hmm. but also then try to solve it by hyper rationalization which is so ironic because if you look at the traditional if you look at some of the slides that other anti-racism firms bring into the workplace they all use the same slide i've seen this in so many different firms and there's a there's a there's a slide that it's divided into two one side says and i kid you not examples of white supremacy And the other side says something like examples of the opposite or whatever. Uh, and they list things like either or forms of thinking. Now, this is something that human beings have been doing since, you know, we have come to be. This is not, this has nothing to do with white supremacy. This is a human thing, right? Um, they list, so that, that's one thing that like, every time I see this slide, I'm like, what? How, how is this? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it literally says? It literally says. That one of the functions of white supremacist culture is to engage in either in an either or oh, form oh, of thinking that, that's literally what it says and I'm like but human human beings and all cultures and all races since before America was even thought of have been engaging in either or forms of thinking so it's like very bizarre because and then on the other side they'll li- they will list positive things to pursue like interdependence or collaboration in the workplace which is all good but they so they and the another thing that they do is they list and the thing itself isn't either or right the, the, the thing <laughs> itself isn't either or it's it's so incoherent but the other thing that they list as negative is like hyper rationalization right and it's like but you're engaging in hyper rationalization <laughs> right. you're, you're literally list making charting and <laughs> yeah classifying. it's like very confused but, but right the, confused. the whole method of te- taxonomy that's 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 mm-hmm. white supremacy if yeah. i ever saw it it's the most yeah. european 18th century thing putting things in orders <laughs> and classes and separate divisions yes exactly and that's why i don't agree with you know some of my conservative brothers and sisters who and i, I don't want to underplay I don't want to downplay their concerns because there are some bad things happening in the public school system in terms of the way critical race theory is affecting the cognitive development and just the basic health of young people. It's just not healthy. However, it's so incoherent and so muddied that I don't suspect it'll be long-lasting. Hmm. You think it's self-devouring, you know what? Not only is it self-devouring, ironically, there is legislation in... our our <laughs> institutions that comes from civil rights act of 1964 that presupposes that some of what's being done is actually a violation <laughs> um and you couldn't write this you couldn't make this up but um not only is it is it destructive it's arguably um you know could be pers- pr- pursued in a In a court of law <laughs> yeah like you can get sued for it mm. uh it is the legal this is I, i don't want to drag us there but i'm i'm a legal file and i just okay. i just get excited every time we get into the ways that ideologies contradict themselves through policy and this just made me think about the the the, the princeton yeah. case as which i'm sure you are you paid full attention oh to. yes that i have to say i have to say that was awesome that was amazing that was like such a chess move That was like such a chess move. I had to give credit where credit was due for that one. 
I don't know what it was. What right, was can you recap thing? it for Vanessa? So basically, <laughs> Princeton came out in the spirit of critical race theory and said, I forgot who, I think it was the dean, maybe, whatever. I think so. But, but it said, we are a racist institution. We are admitting that we have so much work to do. This sort of very, um, you know, confessorial or confessional language. Um, and so the Trump administration <laughs> basically responded by saying, oh, you're a racist institution? We should probably review. We should probably review that, and we should probably review if if public uh, tax money should be going mm. to you. If you're, if, and we should probably review if you're in violation. Right, you've ju- you've just self testified that you're right. committing racism, right. and we we do have you know we do have anti racist laws from right. the Civil Rights <laughs> we, Act. We actually have existing. <laughs> so like, who are we to argue with? Your... Right. Wow. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Trump administration, but that was a good moment. That was probably yeah. That was definitely <laughs> high on the list. Yeah. Um, Chloe, can I? I know that we're running short on time, but can I? Can I ask you one more, a couple more questions, or one more? Sure. Two? We'll see. We'll see. I don't know if you have a hard out, but um, so what, when you were talking about this idea of um, there being kind of like a natural end to kind of critical race theory, it, I've from what I've read of what you think about cancel culture, you similarly think that it's going to have. It's going to come to its own natural end as well. But the the reason that I think you posited is that because if it if it if cancel culture were to continue, it would mean the end of art as as we yes. know it. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking to that. Why why you think art and can- cancel culture have a have a, a relationship there? Yeah, and I think it's the same reason why I think critical race theory will also end is because of the artistic piece um, and. Quite frankly, it's simply because art gives expression to the complexity of the human being. And so if you are, I think, an artist, if you're a true artist, then, and I think we've seen this reflected in the work of folks like Dave Chappelle, for example. I was going to say. If you're you're a true artist, then you are, to a certain extent, the gatekeepers, I think, of our culture, of our society. And at the very least, there will be a clash between trends like cancel culture and critical race theory and the art and the artists. Um, and it's simply because, you know, cancel culture is, and the cancel culture specifically rejects the redemptive nature mm. of our species, our ability to, to change and to transform and to reform. And I think cancel culture is antithetical to, to restorative justice, which is slowly but surely becoming, um, popular and we teach restorative justice in the theory of enchantment so we're going to have uh, an interview about restorative mm-hmm. justice soon. oh nice yeah. very cool yeah so so i just i just think also because there's such a vibrant artistic uh tradition within african-american culture i think that there will be a clash i mean there already is a clash but there it will become more readily apparent that um and you'll notice this isn't this is more cultural than racial. Um, there will be a clash between those sort of acolytes of critical race theory slash cancel culture. And I think the two streams sort of meet at a certain point. And those who want to uphold or believe in the beauty of historically the African American tradition, which which, you know, the artistic aspects of the Harlem Renaissance, for example gave expression to the complexity of the human being. <laughs> James Baldwin talked about the complexity of the human being. I have a piece coming out hopefully soon about how you can follow Ibram Kendi or you can follow James Baldwin. You cannot follow both. Hmm. It's the two fundamentally different things. The, the, the little irony there is that 
in a way, you're, again, proposing your own version, uh, your own cult of progress, assuming... <laughs> say, say more, <laughs> say more. <laughs> your, your assumption there is, is that, and, and I emotionally share yeah. that at some point, the, the, basically, the human spirit will rebel against it. Yeah. There is only so much, <laughs> so much rubbing D'Angelo <laughs> that you can read before you feel that your life has become an empty shell. <laughs> yes. And, that's, yes. and then, and, 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 you know, when you hear, that's why when you hear Dave Chappelle, you laugh right. yes. because yes. It, 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 yes, I'm making a, supersedes I'm making a big those leap and saying you're going to keep laughing. <laughs> exactly. I, I just, I, I've grown more pessimistic. My, okay. my newly newfound skepticism of progress has gone so far that I'm even doubting whether that, whether the human spirit cannot be numbed to an extent that you see, this is where I bring in history to bear <laughs> to make my, to make my argument. If it is possible that i mean we know the human spirit has proved resilient in times past there's no reason why it should prove otherwise in our contemporary contemporary you know stage and i don't i don't think this is about progress again i just think progress as such i don't i don't think it's like right. some point in time where you know um post there's like after history right what was what was the name of the book fukuyama that the end of history yes 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 exactly you're you're suggesting that the human spirit constantly moves towards some form of liberation. The, the, the human spirit is constantly recalibrating to put it in. <laughs> When I listened to you talk, it made me think of Ishayao Leibovich. Do you know him? He's an Israeli. Yes, why do I know him? Probably what from your Israel connection. He, he wrote a lot yeah. about the um, physical mental problem. He's a oh. Israeli philosopher and political commentator. He, he, dead for okay. decades, but still a big name. My version of a chicken bar shirt is of his yeah. silhouette <laughs> he himself embodies the type of contradictions and paradox that we were talking about as as a writer and a thinker he's an orthodox mm -hmm. jew who's also one of israel's most dominant speakers in mm -hmm. favor of separation of synagogue and state and even in his 80s he was one of israel's most yeah. radical leftists he was asked once in one of my favorite exchanges uh do you believe in the messiah leibovitz says yeah. of course the messiah will come Yeah. The interviewer says, great. Do you know how will the Messiah arrive? When will the Messiah arrive? Leibovitch leers at him and then says, vexedly, the Messiah will arrive. A Messiah that has arrived is a false Messiah. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So he's always coming. He's, he's always, always on coming. The, way. the Messiah is on the way. It is, it is categorically a Messiah <laughs> yeah. will come. The, the Messiah actually never arrives. Exactly. It's just, it's just, it, <laughs> I thought that was, that was it. That, and I yeah. think this is, in, in a way, what it's you're saying. It's actually very Jungian. Uh, Jung had very similar interpretations of Christianity. Um, that, that he believed that, that the Christ was a essentially an archetype that you were supposed to embody not worship in mm. the mm. in a sort of yeah it's, it's, it's very there's a parallel between those two. and I, i think it's just it goes to the not to use an a trite phrase i think we've exhausted this phrase already in our conversation right now but the human condition it is yeah. the, uh, it's so not a trite phrase it is a beautiful <laughs> but trite beautiful phrase. <laughs> and it, we just reach out to that to that, again, to, to go Jungian, to the numinous, yeah. but we, we, we're never, we're never going to reach it. And, it's, right. and you're and not supposed to reach it. That's, you're not supposed funny. to reach it. And to oversimplify again, the, the problem with the, the fake conversation that happens between right and left right now, I think, 
in 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 trying to to, to seek our cultural salvation if the left goes too far into believing that we are going to reach there and we're reaching there and we just need to tweak a few more things that's the cult of progress right we're going to change a yeah. few more things in our society and then we're going to reach into that the ultimate paradise and the right maybe has gone overly to the side of what like, we don't even need to hope for that we don't even right. need we just we're, we're kind of good we're actually probably were better 50 years ago so let's just let's hold yeah. still and that's how we are stuck so if there is hope it's in us somehow embracing that Leibovitian contradiction mm-hmm. yeah I do want to ask you about Israel though uh, before letting you go <laughs> okay because I, I like I like ending on, on light topics sure another country yes a whole country yes a whole country <laughs> It, the the segue that we were thinking about was um, from from just went all over the map already so it's yeah. not quite as smooth as planned but we were talking about the critical race theory and the conversation of racism in the United States and listening to you you should also for our listeners tell a little bit about how you got into i mean you've already implied your your jewish connection like you're not mm-hmm. non-jewish jewish connection yeah exogenous jewish connection <laughs> but also you've you've done some you've been involved from a young age in um well you're already you're still young um, <laughs> in, in, in your younger age you're involved in israel related activism so we should yeah. say a little bit about that but also one wonder what you think about the way that the israeli conversation gets filtered through the American prism. Mm. It's a very old gripe of mine to see how anything in international politics when discussed in the United States is seen through the very narrow lens of a shallow understanding of civil rights movement without, mm. without really trying to grasp the differences and the variety of international politics. And it specifically applies to Israel where the where the dichotomy of oppressed oppressor seems to be suggesting itself too easily. I mean that's a whole two hour conversation yeah. <laughs> in and of itself. Um to, to try to sort of condense you know theory of enchantment was the organic product of my nearly 10 years of doing Israel advocacy. So um I did it I did it on college campuses and also a little bit post college And I kept running into this problem of shouting matches on campuses mm. when shouting matches about Israel <laughs> <laughs> funny um, uh, yeah, I mean anytime the Israeli Palestinian conflicts would come up, there would be this, not not all the time but often enough, and I kept thinking, you know, what if there could be like these first principles that mm. people agreed to practice? When discussing controversial challenging topics that they would hold themselves um, accountable to and those principles ended up being the three principles of theory of enchantment and um, I went from being sort of a dogmatic Hasbaronic person and to being like I went from reading polemics to reading literature and Amos Oz became one of my favorite um, authors and I think the engagement what's your w- favorite book um, definitely yeah, tell of love and darkness yeah it's okay. pretty pretty freaking awesome uh, <laughs> um, and it's basically his autobiography so yeah it's amazing um, it's I, mean, I refuse to watch a movie because I just assume oh, oh, me too <laughs> I just assume um, but my exposure to the literary uh, treatment 
of the conflict uh, was very much a catalyst for wanting to create a framework that taught people how to love. Because there's so much love that shines through his assessments and and his bearing witness to everything that's happening around him um, to the Jew and the Arab. And I wanted to create a kind of system that could produce that or produce the desire within people to want that. Um, so it first started out as a question of how do you actually love within the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And then I started lecturing on it and people were like, this is universally applicable to so many things. And then, so it became its own thing. Um, so it's interesting. The, the, the area of enchantment piece is very much rooted in the Israel piece, um, very much an outgrowth of my, my love of an engagement with Israel. Um, in terms of the international arena, I mean, I have to say, I've gotten a bit jaded by Hasbarah just because I think Hasbarah falls into the same... Propaganda? <laughs> well, yes, but to be more precise, it's the same um, signal versus noise problem Absolutely. that I think, like... Um, it's, a, it's a noise amplifier. Yeah, it's a noise amplifier, which doesn't isn't helpful, ultimately. And so I think that w- while there are... There's a whole bunch of different dynamics here. There's the noise amplification that is Hasbara, which is unhelpful. There's the question of the, the way identity and how it's in flux um, and, and how identity is viewed in America or experienced in America through an American lens, which is very different from identity being experienced through the Israeli right. or even the Palestinian lens. And when one is superimposed upon the other, it gets, it just doesn't work. Um, and this reflects an incapacity of individuals, nations, elites, etc., to hold space for, this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, to hold space for different modes of being and different modes of, of living within one's own identity. Um, and to be able to switch from one to the other or to just understand both as different ways of understanding the world um, is not really countenanced in the oppressor versus oppressed framework, uh, which is, again, a flattening uh, framework. So, I mean, that's very much touching, only touching the surface, but that's what I would say about that entire question. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'm I'm just like, the urges to keep you here for three more hours. I appreciate that. Maybe we'll have a conversation. I was going to (laughs) say, before you go, I heard you started playing guitar. Do you mind playing something? On guitar, I mean, I could, I could, I could send you a track to play after, like as an oh, outro. Yes, why not? Let's do that. Yeah, because yeah, my guitars aren't tuned right now. That would be <laughs> not good for your listeners' ears. But I could definitely send you a track that you can play in the in the outro if you'd like. I I I, I would like that. That would be fun. Awesome, and I love because it's. I, I, you can cut this out, but I have this theory that um, theory of enchantment is also very much informed by my whole DJ thing, and it's. My my theory is that uh, is what I call the great convergence, um, which is what happens on the dance floor with, with, mm-hmm. a, with when a DJ is like knows what they're doing, right? You see, you have this experience of the numinous uh, and oneness of human beings on the dance floor, and so my whole theory about convergence is by bringing in pop culture, bringing in music, bringing in the arts, bringing in these different things that so many different people from different walks of life gravitate toward and relate to. I can cause a massive convergence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Massive Convergence, the name of your next album.
I, I also approach Twitter in that in with that mindset as a DJ. The one the one time I actually went viral, I went I was trending on Twitter this year for the first time in my life, which was nuts. But it affirmed my DJ theory because I was trending because I wrote this thread about how the those who subscribe to critical race theory and a lot of Trump supporters suffer from the same um, thing, which is alienation. And I wrote this entire thread, like pulling from different sources, showing, and it literally went viral, which proves that like, and it, w- it was going viral because Trump supporters were sharing it and people on the left were sharing it. That's the great convergence. Mm. And that's beautiful. And that Massive happens. convergence. <laughs> Nice. Awesome. Oh, thank you, Chloe. Chloe, this was thank a pleasure. You both. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, this was awesome. Before we let you go, we'd love to tell you about new friends we've made. Yeah, we have discovered a new podcast called What Does It Profit? Uh, it's a show all about the the kind of tricky uh, con- ethical considerations that come up when you're a corporation trying to do good in this world. And, uh, you know, what does it take? What are the challenges? How do you overcome them? Uh, and it's hosted by Don Carpenter. Yep, she's a scholar who's done her PhD dissertation on the intersection between the business world, ethics, and morality. She brings great guests with really interesting perspectives on this topic but also her own insight into it is unique which is why we're going to have don as a guest very soon we're going to talk not just about the idea about corporations and whether or not they can actually be actors for social good but also talk about some other interesting stuff that she's covered in her research things like contributive justice theory she's done some work on moral foundations which we've referenced last time which hopefully we'll get to talk about and also she promised me a noam chomsky anecdote so there's that check her out at what does it profit podcast thank you for listening to uncertain things what you're hearing in the background is chloe valerie's track poe please follow us on uncertain.sapstack.com and wherever you get your podcasts Make sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple if you're feeling kind. Say hi to us on Twitter and Instagram at UncertainPod. And do tell your friends. Till next time, stay sane.